with an acting career that spans a range from The Three Sisters, directed by Lee Strasberg, to the current off-Broadway hit Love, Loss, and What I Wore, today's guest has shown her versatility time and time again. She's appeared in notable productions of plays by Tennessee Williams, William Inge, Edward Albee, Eve Ensler, and Horton Foote, working on both U.S. coasts and in England. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm honored to meet Shirley Knight. Thank you. I'm going to start by reading back a quote. I always get nervous in case somebody misquoted you, but uh, I found this very interesting. I never give a performance. Each night I have another rehearsal. I absolutely said that. So tell me what that means. That means that there's only one pure state of acting, in my opinion. And that is that you don't know what you're going to say. You don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what the other person's going to say. And you don't know what they're going to do. When I talk to young students, I say to them, because it's sometimes difficult to really comprehend that sentence, but... If you are a pianist, for example, your homework is learning the notes, the dynamic, the timing. And when you have mastered that, when you actually play the concerto or the etude, you never think about the timing or the notes or the dynamics, you simply live in that music as you're playing it. And the problem with a lot of actors is that they do what I would call rerun acting. Their concentration is in the wrong place. Their concentration is on recreating something as opposed to being in the moment and having the confidence to understand that they're enough and to be absolutely open and listen and respond. Because often what happens is actors are not thinking. They're thinking about that. They're thinking about what they're working on or <laughs> so many other things. Uh, so that is that is basically the way I work. And I also believe that when you are in that moment-to-moment state, the audience is in a state of anticipation rather than relaxation. A lot of the English acting, and not all of it, but a lot of English acting is very comfortable for the audience because they can sit there and feel and say, oh, I've felt that, I know that, I know what that feels like, rather than, oh, my God, what is she going to do? But let me stick with your metaphor for a moment. In the case of a concert pianist, mm-hmm. if they are playing a solo, certainly, they can vary the timing as they see fit because it impacts only upon themselves. In a symphony work... Or in mm-hmm. a play where you are working not necessarily in unison but certainly in collaboration with other actors, can't that be problematic for the other performers if you are changing things up? You don't change things up. Hmm. You're saying the same words. 
you're doing the same blocking, but you are listening and you allow whatever happens to hit you as if it's never happened before. It's never happened before. Hmm. And that is why I could do a play. I remember when I did Kennedy's Children, did it on Broadway for about six months, I think, and went on tour with it. I was in San Francisco, and I I remember coming down after the performance and saying to myself, okay, I've got her. I know absolutely every aspect of this woman. I know who she is. And I then won the Tony for that performance. But what was so fascinating to me is all the people that voted for the performance, for me, it was not my complete performance. It wasn't my absolutely embodied performance where I really knew who she was. Hmm. I mean, it's no accident that for me, my best performance on film, for example, is Dutchman because I did the play for seven months. Hmm. I knew who she was. You know, a lot of film acting is, is not what I call finished. You know, I, I don't... It's not as lived in. Yes, exactly. exactly. That's why I think most of the film actors that are successful basically play themselves. Hmm. Well, let's apply this to what you're currently appearing in, Love, Loss, and What I Wore, because you are actually sitting in a fixed position with a script on a music stand in front of you. It's part of the device. You've seen it with love letters. It's certainly yes, been like used in various the theatrical monologues, which I've done about two hundred times. Exactly. Yes. So when you perform in something like Love Lost and What I Wore or Vagina Monologues, mm-hmm. where there's no pretense that you've learned the script, though perhaps you really have memorized it. I have mostly memorized it, hmm. yes, but I'm very at the very beginning of my work on it. I've only done it like for a week and a half. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a very different format in the sense that you aren't really interacting except with the audience. And it's more like you're telling them a story. So it's it's kind of interesting. It's kind of I've, I've done a couple of books on tape. I did Tennessee's uh, The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, and it's kind of like that for me, telling a story as if you're reading a book hmm. to people and hoping that they'll. But I'm trying. I I think I'm lucky in this p- particular piece because I'm playing just one character. You are the one person who has the through line. Y- yes, and so I think it's a little easier for me in one sense. Although I certainly don't think I've I've reached any kind of of level that I'm. Last night, actually, and yesterday afternoon was the first time I said, "Oh, you know, I'm." I'm getting okay in this part. <laughs> hmm. But interestingly, you know, you mentioned that. Though you're sitting with scripts, you're not up performing it. For you, the style is not dissimilar to your role in Kennedy's Children, which was also no, interwoven so, monologues. Now, yes. in this case, you're the only yes. one with a true monologue. Everyone else has, has snippets. Yes. But it, it's a style you've played before. Yes, and I have to tell you, I loved Kennedy's Children. I loved doing that part because it was so different for me, that role. And 
I really loved it. And I also, I love the writer, Robert Patrick, and what he was, what he was saying. Hmm. I'm very drawn to new material. I loved doing Dutchman in the theater. I loved losing time. You know, I loved the fact that we really scared people to death when we did losing time because no one was ready for that play. Hmm. And I loved Landscape of the Body, the John Ware play. Again, that was something that people were not prepared for. And I really like that. I like – because for me, we only have two things in, in life that – show and help us to understand the human condition. And one is art and one is philosophy. And it's no accident to me that when people want to destroy a civilization, one of the first things they do is try to destroy art, burn books and so on. Because then the people are resorted simply to an animalistic behavior of violence and aggression and avarice and greed and so on. So I think I'm 73 years old. I'm still doing it. There's got to be a reason why I keep doing this. And I think it's because I really feel strongly about moving people and helping them to understand certain things. I mean, for example, years ago, Eve Ensler and Joanne Woodward and I got together and Eve wrote a piece that Joanne directed and I, I was in. It was Eve's, Eve Ensler's very first piece. It was called The Depot and it was a one-woman play about a woman who was becoming politicized about the world around her and Joanne directed it and I was the woman and Eve wrote it and then there was one other character that was a soldier who simply – walked back and forth and I talked to him and told him all the things that were wrong with what was going on in the world. And that young man was the first thing he ever did. He was right out of the neighborhood playhouse. It was Eve's, Eve Ensler's stepson, hmm. Dylan McDermott. So the four of us traveled around the country for SANE and the Center for Defense Information. And we did this piece in universities, in auditoriums. We carried a little set with us and so on. And it was fascinating because there were one memorable night. And then we would talk afterward about, you know, what we were trying to do. And one night, a young man came up and he said, you know, I was going to join the Army, but I – I decided I'm not going to now. And I thought, how interesting that was. I mean, not that people shouldn't join the army. I mean, I'm a pacifist, so I don't believe there should be an army. But <laughs> but that's another – that's in an ideal world, you know. But I, I just thought it was fascinating that we we moved this young man. Anyway, I like doing – I like shaking things up. So tell me what the appeal – of Love, Loss, and What I Wore was for you. Because from the outside, for people who haven't seen it, it seems like it's a fluffy (laughs) entertainment. And it is. It is. I think 
Sometimes you do things, you know, like I do frivolous television and movies often because I've never thought of myself as being funny. So the minute someone says to me, oh, will you do, do Paul Blart Mall Cop? Adam Sandler thinks he wants to destroy my serious acting career and puts me in his movies, which is wonderful. And the minute, you know, when I do Desperate Housewives or Drop Dead Diva or whatever these things are, it's an opportunity for me to – in a way, rest hmm. because I uh, – and also I, there's something very touching about love loss and what I wore because we all go through divorces and remarriages and disappointments and obsession with our looks and clothing and so on. So – in a way, it, it's kind of sweet to watch all these women sort of laughing about themselves. You know, they'll sort of sit there and laugh and say, oh, this is, this is, this is, uh, you're like that. Or their husbands will poke their wives when they talk about the purse and it being t- full of rubbish and so on. Uh, so it's kind of, kind of fun. Well, I have to ask because I was not the only man in the theater last night, but certainly I was in the minority. Yes. And the cell phone announcement said, please rummage around in your purse to check that your cell phone is off. So so there was a clear message at the start of the show that, that, that I wasn't the target demographic. <laughs> what response do you get? First from from women, and then do you get responses from men other than them nudging their uh, <laughs> their wives? Well, well, I think there was a man last night, an older man and his wife, and when I went outside, they they uh, they thanked me and all that, and and the husband said, you know, I'm one of the men that gets this. which which I thought was very sweet. He thought he was particularly enlightened. Yes, absolutely. So it's fun. Well, let's let's go back and talk about uh, how you got started in all of this. You grew up in Kansas? I grew up in Kansas in a little teeny town, but not even a town, a hamlet, I guess it would be called, of uh, 13 houses, one church, a Methodist church, a depot where they pick the wheat up. A bunch of wheat is grown in Kansas, as you probably know. And a two-room schoolhouse. I went to a two-room schoolhouse. I had Mrs. Rhodes, the first through the fourth grade, and Mr. Rhodes, the fifth through the eighth grade. So by the time you got to the fourth and the eighth grade, you knew everything because you were in the same room. And my entertainment, as it were, as a child... My mother's family were very musical. My mother played the piano and sang. My grandfather played the cello. My grandfather was British, actually, my mother's father. And their family is the Webster family, actually. His, I think, great uncle or something was Noah Webster, who wrote the dictionary, and and going back, Daniel Webster. But my grandfather actually emigrated. So, Hmm. But at any rate, they were... My grandfather and my mother and I, every Saturday, the most wonderful thing about my week was listening to the opera, to the Metropolitan Opera on the radio. And I noticed in the buildings in town, you didn't mention a theater. Oh, there's no theater. I saw – it's bizarre that I'm an actress because I saw only three movies as a child. I saw we were taken to Hutchison, which is about 25 miles away, three times, and we saw Bambi and The Wizard of Oz, 
and a movie that my mother wanted to see called The Dolly Sisters. Now, The Dolly Sisters plays a very important role in my life because I loved that movie and I was mad about paper dolls and they had paper dolls from that movie and it was a movie about vaudeville and June Haver and Betty Grable sang and danced and it was absolutely fabulous for someone who'd never seen anything uh-huh. and and anyway the paper dolls I coveted them and I was given them for my birthday and I loved them so much and I loved the costumes I was maybe 10 years old or something. I loved the costumes. And years later, I did a film, a Tennessee Williams film called Sweet Bird of Youth, where I played opposite Paul Newman. And I was really a novice, and I wasn't all that impressed with any of the stars in the film. However, Richard Brooks, who directed the movie, said to me, you need to go over to the costumers because Ori Kelly is doing your costumes. I nearly had a heart attack because on the paper dolls, it had who designed those costumes. Ah. And the costumes in the Dolly Sisters were designed by Ori Kelly. So I go over and I meet this man who's been doing movies for 30 years and uh, had a foreign accent and was so sweet and I could not resist. I said, oh, Mr. Kelly, I loved the Dolly sisters. I love the clothes. You know? And he, I think he looked like at me as if I were from outer space. But from the time I was very little, uh, long story short, I wanted to be an opera singer. I really wanted to be Roberta Peters, and I had a very nice soprano voice. And that was my goal in life. And I would learn the arias listening to them on the radio. And then later, my grandfather had a cousin who was an opera singer in Europe, and she sent all of these scores. Hmm. And I was able to to have them. And then when I was in high school, I won a state contest and was able to sing in the chorus of the opera and outside of Denver and so on and so forth. I had no intention to be an actress at all. But between my junior and senior year, I figured I needed to learn to act. Is for this my high school or college now? College. Okay. I figured I needed to learn to act for my singing. And I was working to put myself through college at a newspaper, the Wichita Beacon, and I was the assistant society editor. And they got magazines at the paper, and one of the magazines was a magazine called Theater Arts. And in that Theater Arts magazine was a, an ad that for $250, you could go to Pasadena to the Pasadena Playhouse and take an acting course. So I thought, I'm going to do this in the summer. It was in the summer, and I didn't want to be do bookkeeping for my father who was in the oil business. So I got another job. The first television station had opened in Wichita. This is like 1957. And... I got a job doing the placards, holding up next on the news and that sort of thing, and I made enough money to go take this course. And I 
got on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, and I ended up in Pasadena, California. And the most exciting thing was that I got to see an ocean. Because when you live in Kansas, it's 1,500 miles from an ocean. And in those days, they had a, a train that went from downtown L.A. to the beach in Santa Monica. The first weekend, I got on a train and I saw the Pacific Ocean, mm. and that was thrilling. Anyway, everybody did a play. We did the House of Bernarda Albus. Somebody saw me. I started staying at a place that a friend told me about called the Hollywood Studio Club, and I got a job right away. I looked very young for my age, and I got a job as an unwed mother on a show called NBC Matinee Theater. And what else happened? Oh, I got – I was put under contract at Warner Brothers Studios. Wow. And the first film that I did for them was The Dark at the Top of the Stairs by Kansan, William Inge, who I started a festival in honor of. I started a festival called the William Inge Festival. And that festival continues. Yes, it does. Day. All these years I've done – I started it like 26 years ago. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I did that movie and I was nominated for an Oscar. And I – I didn't re- – I think I must have had a natural talent, probably because of my singing because everyone always said when I sang that I was telling them a story. So I obviously had that talent, but I didn't really know about it. But I wanted to know more. So I started doing plays. The first play I did was Look Back in Anger. At Pasadena Playhouse. No, the, I no? did The House of Bernard Alba. At pa- oh. That was the at Pasadena Playhouse. I did um, – the Look Back in Anger with Bobby Driscoll, Dean Stockwell, Sally Kellerman and I did it in a little theater on Sunset Boulevard. Oh. And Oh, and Robert Blake directed it. We were all in an acting class together. Oh. So by then, this is after I'd done The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, I started studying acting because I felt I better know what I'm doing. And I went to Jeff Corey. And in in my class were Jack Nicholson, Robert Blake, Bobby Driscoll, Dean Stockwell, Sally Kellerman, Millie Perkins, me. It was quite a wow. class. Yeah, it sounds it. was it. quite a class. And Robert Blake was the one that said, let's do a play. Let's huh. put on a play because <laughs> huh. he wanted to direct. So, so you say you, you sort of started – the studying then. Now, yes. you've already got an Oscar nomination in your credits. In in term, You're doing some theater on the West Coast. Yes, I also did Little Mary Sunshine because of my singing. Mm-hmm. I did that uh, in L.A. as well when I first started. In fact, I did that. I was doing the film Sweet Bird of Youth. You know mm-hmm. how you have a lot of energy when you're young? In 19, This is 1962. <laughs> I was doing the film of Sweet Bird of Youth and at night I was singing a Little Mary Sunshine. Wow. <laughs> what brought you to New York? Geraldine Page, Paul Newman, Mildred Dunnick, Madeline Sherwood, and Rip Torn. Because when I did Sweet Bird of Youth, I felt like they knew something I didn't know. And I wanted to know what that was. I really – if I was going to do this actor thing, I was going to be the best at it. 
you know, I wasn't going to fool around because I was determined to either be Roberta Peters or a writer like George Eliot. You know, I was determined to be an artist. So I, Geraldine and, and Paul and all of them, they, they said, come to New York. And I came to New York. They introduced me to Lee Strasberg. I went into his private classes. I auditioned for the Actors Studio. And I started doing plays off-Broadway. And I did, I don't know, four or five plays off-Broadway. A play called Journey to the Day at the Theatre de Lise. A play called Rooms at the Cherry uh, Lane. You know, I... I can't remember them all. <laughs> it's so long ago. But in 1964, you in made 19... your Broadway debut. In 1964, I made my Broadway debut in Three Sisters with Geraldine Page and Kim Stanley. And I learned so much from those two women. Well, and directed, as I said and in the intro, by, by Strasberg. by Lee Strasberg. I mean, it's Luther... mind-blowing when I saw what that cast was. Uh, Luther was Adler was in it. And, oh, my God. And the great Barbara Baxley, mm-hmm. one of the great American theater actresses. It just fantastic actress. So what what was the experience of of doing that show with those people? What did you learn? Can you can you say it or did I you just, just I learned, absorb it? I learned everything. And I remember one night for example there there was this the scene in the play where it's just Kim Stanley and Geraldine Page and I on stage and every night that scene was different. And I think it had to do with the fact that the three of us were so in sync that it was like the audience didn't breathe, literally like hmm. they were holding their breath. And, and I thought, this is, what, this is what this is really about, this acting thing. This is amazing. And one matinee, I my, – because my technique was not formed quite yet. And you uh, were playing which sister? I was playing Irina, the youngest sister. Oh, and by the way, at the same time, I had done a a dreadful film with uh, Richard Burton. I was going to ask you about this. And and Richard Burton played my father in this film. And we were in Alaska and L.A. And he took a liking to me. And I learned Shakespeare from Richard Burton. He would do all these monologues without even having the, the, the script. And I started learning all of these male monologues from Shakespeare from him. But you when know. you did The Three Sisters, you had a competing offer. Which I was had a competing offer, which was Richard asked me uh, – Richard Burton was going to do Hamlet on Broadway and he asked me to play Ophelia. And I was so torn between three – and they were at the same time. And I was so torn between Three Sisters and Hamlet, Three Sisters and Hamlet. And my husband said, don't think about – that it's Richard Burton playing Hamlet. Don't think about that it's Lee Strasberg directing The Three Sisters and that that is your conflict. Don't think about that. Sit down and read both of the plays. That was the smartest thing he could have said to me. Hmm. I sat down and I read Hamlet and I sat down and I read The Three Sisters and I said, you know what? The arena is a better part than Ophelia. It was that simple. It was a better role. 
And so that made my decision easier. And Richard forgave me. We were fine. <laughs> but we veered off. I mean, I'm glad I wanted to talk about that. But but let's come back. You were talking about the power of the, the scene, just the three, oh, the you, three you of us. and Jerry Page. And, and I learned and so Stanley. much. For example, one, mm, I think it was a matinee, Kim made an exit and the audience applauded her on her exit. And I was standing off stage. I think I had to go on next or something. And she said, well, that'll never happen again. And I said, I was puzzled. I said, but but, but why? Isn't that, isn't that a good thing? You know? And she said, honey, if they can put their hands together, they ain't feeling blank. I won't say that word. You, you can, but... Uh, yeah, they ain't feeling shit, she said. Mm-hmm. And bells went off. Because I thought about that and I thought, of course, it's because I was – at that time I was going to the ballet a lot because I had a beau who was a ballet dancer. But I thought that's what they do in the ballet and that's sometimes what they do in the opera. When people go off, they go – you know. But if it's real and if you're being really affected, then you shouldn't be able to put your hands together and applaud. And years later when I did The Cherry Orchard, I truly understood that, which I will talk about that as we go along. Well, let me ask you, is it that they should be so affected that they can't applaud or is it that the performance has somehow stepped out of ensemble in a way that becomes so bravura that they're more focused on the performance than than the character? And they shouldn't be. Hmm. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be impressed. Hmm. They should. They should be feeling. And I think. I mean, I have a great deal of. Um, uh, I don't know. There's something go- odd going on in the cinema f- now. For example, it's like people are thinking, "Oh, when I do this, I- I'll get an Academy Award." Instead of being in the character, everybody's acting too much at the moment. Instead of being, just calm down. <laughs> you know, hmm. but that's another that's another discussion. But also Geraldine, one day, one day I came off stage and I didn't feel it was as good as it had been. I felt something was wrong, and and I just didn't feel it was as good. And I started crying. I was so upset. And Geraldine came over to me and she said, "You know what happened, don't you?" I said, "No, what happened?" <laughs> she says. You you have to understand that everything is available to you all the time. And the only thing that stops it from being available is fear. And just assume that everything is always in you and you don't have to work for it because it's always there. After all, where did it go? And that was revelatory as well. Because if you're relaxed and you, you – know, let's say you're, you're supposed to cry in a scene or whatever. If you're relaxed and you just know that whatever happens, as long as you're feeling and listening, it's there. You don't have to, quote, work for it mm. or, or impose – things on the material that are not appropriate. 
which often happens with actor. It, that's such a total misunderstanding, by the way, of the, quote, method where people are imposing their dead mother or whatever. You don't have to work for memories. Hmm. You drive along in a car. I drive along in a car. An aria comes on that was my mother's favorite aria, and I start crying. I don't have control over that. And so if you make that assumption as an actor, it's just there. Let's move. You don't have to force it. Let's move with, with those thoughts to Dutchman. Dutchman, in some ways, is still a shocking piece. It must have been oh. incendiary in 65. You didn't do the New oh. York production, but you no. did it in L.A., and as you say, you, I, you did the film. I saw that play in New York, and I said, I have to do this part. So my first husband, who was a producer and did many, many serious plays, said, well, let's do it in Los Angeles. And wow. Did we have problems? This was uh, like 1965. We got kicked out of one theater because of the play. We were doing it with another of Leroy's plays, Amiri Baraka's plays. At the uh, time, Leroy Jones. Uh, yes, at the time, Leroy Jones, called The Toilet. The Los Angeles Times would not print the word toilet in the ad. Hmm. They printed T dash 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 T. Dutchman and that could the be more provocative depending dash, on dash, what dash, you're dash, guessing. I mean, it was absurd. <laughs> the John Birch Society came and were unbelievable. I mean, threats. You know, my my daughter was like four years old, and they were threatening and this and that. Hmm. I went on television to talk about the play, and they had someone on from the John Birch Society who, what was I can't remember the guy's program. Joe Pine was his name. He had a show, and a talk show in L.A., and and he said to the man, he said, what is bothering you about this? Why are you so uptight about it? And he screamed at me, and he said, that white woman with that black man. Hmm. I mean, it was extraordinary. We had to move, my husband and my daughter and I, we had to move to Malibu to the to a secluded place because they were really saying horrible, you know, and wow. trying and getting horrible letters and all that sort of thing. Were audiences um, coming? Oh, audiences were coming. But the the district attorney's office came and they recorded the play to try to get us closed down for obscenity. Hmm. I mean, this is the time of like Lenny Bruce, for example. One night we went to see Lenny Bruce in a club on Sunset and the cops came in and Lenny Bruce had done his, most of his show and he said, OK, everybody, let's say the word. They're going to they're gonna haul me out of here, but let's all say the word together. And everybody said, da-da-da-da, <laughs> <laughs> that bad word, which everybody on earth says now. And they hauled him out. I was there. They took Lenny Bruce out. They didn't take everybody out. No, just, no, just, just Lenny. Hmm. But that was the, the the atmosphere. So Burgess felt that I was not getting her sexuality. And so he sent me to Fredericks of Hollywood to buy some sexy clothing. And then the next morning, he said, I'm picking you up at 11 and we're going somewhere that I, I think will help you. And by the way, he was one of my favorite directors. Because he was an actor, he really he really was a terrific director. Anyway, uh, he picks me up and he takes me to the Pink Pussycat on Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood, uh, which is a strip club. 
And I said, why are we here? He said, you're going to have a strip lesson. And I said, no. <laughs> and he, he took me in. And there was this um, – there were two people. There was a man and a woman. And the woman was leaning on the bar, clearly very hungover. And the guy said, look, I'm, I'm the MC here, and my wife is a little – out of it this morning, but don't worry about it because I know all her moves. Uh. I'll teach you. <laughs> I'll teach you. And I thought this could be the most horrible morning of my life. And Burgess, of course, was laughing and saying, oh, that'll be great. Surely you'll go for that, won't you? And, and so I had a striptease lesson, bump and grind, etc. And I think after that, I was absolutely perfect with my sexuality and everything because I didn't want to be taken somewhere else by Burgess. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say you were probably the only person who can say that you were given a bump and grind lesson by the owner of the Pink Pussy Cat and studied with Lee Strasberg. Yes. I believe that that may be uh, unique yes. to you. <laughs> I, I'm going to jump ahead from, okay. from Dutchman. Mm -hmm. There's a period, it seems, late 60s, early 70s where you were doing work in England and did this That's right. coincide with meeting your second husband who That's correct. was English? Yes. I married John Hopkins, the playwright, and we moved to England where John's plays were being done and he was doing a lot of movies and and things for the BBC and so on. And it was really wonderful. I did uh, Sophocles' Antigone at the Nottingham Playhouse, for example, and I did A Touch of the Poet with, um, oh gosh, I can't think of his name at the moment. That's <laughs> okay. Uh, a Touch of the Poet. And then I did a play of John's called Economic Necessity, which was wonderful. And then I did three of his television plays. Hmm. So I did quite a, quite a lot of work while I was there. And uh, learned quite a bit. I don't want to get too personal, but I have to ask. You are an actress who has been married to a producer mm -hmm. and to a writer. That's correct. <laughs> um, which, which is harder? Going home to the producer saying, there's a play I'd like to do. Will you produce it? Or going home to the writer saying, won't you write me a play? <laughs> you know, with John, um, I never – for a moment asked him to write anything for me because he was um, an extraordinary creative genius, really. And he wrote what he felt like writing, what was important to him. You know, he wrote a couple of plays for the National Theatre at that time, and one was a war play, and uh, the other was Next to Kin, the one that Harold Pinter directed. And so he wrote – when he wrote Economic Necessity, he felt that I was just very right for that role. Hmm. Later on, he wrote Losing Time for Jane Alexander and, and me. So – and. And directed by Jane's husband. That's correct. Written by your yes. husband. That's a family affair. That was a family affair, yes. <laughs> hmm. and, and Ed Sheeran had directed John's play Find Your Way Home on Broadway. Let me ask you about two playwrights, both yes. of whom you've mentioned. First of all, William Inge. Was it simply that you were both from Kansas or was there something particular that drew you to that work? You know, I 
perhaps because I I was a girl from Kansas, that might have had something to do with Gilbert Mann's selection of me to play that girl. I was all I was also particularly physically right for it. I mean, I was 19, but I looked 15. And when William Inge came on the set and I met him, he looked at me and he said, you look like you could be a girl from Kansas. And I said, I am a girl from Kansas. And that was the only time I I ever met him. Hmm. Uh, But he was very sweet. And when I was a little girl... The town of Sterling, Kansas, was very close to us, and they shot a picnic there. And my sister and brother and I were extras around this lake. And I I remember my mother going to Joshua Logan and embarrassing us and and telling him that that her children had to get out of the sun because they could get very sick from being in the sun too long. I was, I don't know, 12 years old or something. Hmm. But those are my only two connections. That and the fact that Barbara Baxley was a friend and she was a very close friend of his. Hmm. And what was wonderful is when I started the festival with these amazing women from his hometown, I was so moved by the fact that sometimes people think, oh, Kansas, it's corny and the people are this and the people are that and so on. And yet this little town of about... I don't know how independence must be 4,500 people, support this festival about a man who was gay, who was an alcoholic, and who committed suicide. And that says a great deal about them, Mm -hmm. that they loved him, honored him. We raised money. We bought the home that he was raised in, and we've turned it into a museum. I'm very proud of them. And you've gone on to do more of his plays over time. In the in the 80s, you did several, I believe. Oh, I did uh, Bus Stop. Mm-hmm. And, With uh, Dabney Coleman. Hmm. <laughs> we were quite good, actually. Hmm. So now Tennessee Williams. Tennessee, my heart. My heart. I love him so much. I think that I was destined to play Blanche because that was really my role. That's the best way I can explain it. I really, really understood her. And one of the thrills of my life is that when Tennessee came uh, to see me, and I did the play twice because I wanted to finish my work on it. I didn't finish, I didn't feel I totally finished her the first time I did it. It was a lovely production. You know, Glenn Close played Stella, and it was a lovely production. But I did it again, and when Tennessee saw the first production, he went home and he sat down and he wrote a play for me. And, you know, I've had a lot of awards through the years, Tonys and Emmys and Oscar nominations and Golden Globes and Venice Film Festival, you know, lots of awards and things. But I think the three honors that have been given me that I treasure most is the fact that Tennessee wrote a play for me called A Lovely Sunday for Kravkar. Francis Ford Coppola wrote a film for me called The Rain People. And Ingmar Bergman chose me to do his television play, The Lie. And I think 
there's something about something about that that really just touches me more than more than anything else really mm-hmm. but i loved tennessee i loved him i have so many stories about him but you know we don't need to, but, to talk but endlessly. Let's, let's talk about Crevecourt for a minute because mm-hmm. it's not one of the plays that's entered the general canon that no. we that we no. see a lot. Did he explain to you why he wrote it for you, what it was he saw in you that he wanted to put I, on? I think he saw uh, – do you know the play at all? The, I'm afraid I don't. Um, the, the woman that I played was um, – <laughs> so sweet. Uh, she was very, I don't know, she read like women's magazines and and she was kind of like a doll in a way. I mean, Tennessee, he always, he would always say things to me like, Shirley, you know that you are a witch. You know that, don't you? You are a witch. You know, and he he would write me wonderful notes like one I framed because it's just so wonderful. He, it says, when I think joyfully of theater, I think of you as well, which is just, you know, just mm. such an amazing thing. Now, he wrote, interestingly enough, he wrote the play, Krevker, for three actresses, for me, Barbara Baxley, and Maureen Stapleton. And the three of us read the play. And then afterward, Tennessee I ho- said, I hope you all will do this lovely play of mine. And Maureen Stapleton <laughs> went over to him and said, Honey, I love you so much, but Shirley's got all the cookies. <laughs> so she, she didn't do the play. <laughs> but I loved him. Oh. On the other t- plays that you did of Williams, as you say, you did um, – you played Blanche twice. Yes. Were those productions in which he was involved or were they simply opportunities? He was there for the first production, mm-hmm. yes, that we did at the McCarter Theater and also at the uh, uh, Annenberg Center in Philadelphia. Hmm. And I was asked years before that, when we were still living in England, I was asked to do it at Lincoln Center with John Voigt, and my life was such that I that I couldn't do it. But I could have done it much earlier. But honestly, I think I did it at the right time because I – that's one hell of a part. You – you know, that's a tough one. Hmm. That's – Well, as we talk about certainly Williams and and Inge, who who in some ways some might see as as similar souls, I also want to ask about the young man from Atlanta and Horton Horton. Foote. And (laughs) and can you tell me a little about the experience of doing that play at a time Mm. when it was now – with with uh, the Orphans Home Cycle and the mm-hmm. revival of uh, Trip to Bountiful, there you know certainly Signature Theater here in New York has done so much to yes. restore Horton yes. to to the place that he should be. Young Man from Atlanta was really the very beginning of people suddenly rediscovering mm-hmm. Horton Foot. What was what was it like to be part of that project? It was magical. I loved it so much. I love that play. I love that part. There was something about the woman that I found. Um, I think 
she reminded me very much of my Aunt Opal, who I loved, was my favorite aunt, because my Aunt Opal always had a handkerchief, and she always, she never crossed her legs. Hmm. And when she would sit down, she would sort of pull her skirt down and lay her hands there and then put her hands somewhere else. And I remember when I, when I did that in the play, Joanne, Joanne Woodward said to me, that gesture with your hands, and I said, well, that really belonged to my Aunt Opal. And I think there are, you know, because you soak up everyone's mannerisms and different voices and gestures and so on. Uh, but also Horton Foote as a man was one of the most gentle, loving, fantastic people that I've ever known. Uh, he was being honored in Austin, actually, a couple years ago, and, and they asked me to come and, and give a speech about him. And I, I, I was, oh, I was so moved by one thing. You know, I don't know. Did you see Young Man from Atlanta? I did not see oh, that. Um, I sing a hymn in it, and he told me when we started rehearsal, he said, you know, I put this hymn in the play because of you. And I said, really? He said, yes, because of of the hymn that you sang at Richard Burton's memorial. At Richard's memorial, when, when we were uh, doing our film together, um, we, the two of us would sing hymns because he's Welsh and, and knew, we knew a lot of similar hymns. And we used to sit around and sing hymns uh, on the set. And um, so when they had Richard's Memorial, I talked a bit about him and him teaching me Shakespeare and, and how to speak correctly. You know, I would, being from Kansas, I mean, I, because I had English grandparents, I was always being corrected because you know, in Kansas, people say I for E, like, can I have 10 cents? And my grandmother would say, I beg your pardon. I'm sure that you mean 10 cents. So I had a lot of that in my childhood about speaking correctly. But I remember I was doing, I was saying the word warrior, you know, like a warrior. And Richard would say it is warrior, Warrior, and I had so much trouble <laughs> not saying warrior. So he, I loved him as well. But um, Horton, very special, hmm. very special man. I was sad when he died. And you know something bizarre? Two weeks before he died, I wrote him a letter and sent it to him. And I hope he got it. But I wrote him a letter just saying how much I loved him and how I was thinking about him and how pleased I was that they were doing all these plays of his at the Signature Theater. And and we should explain that for people who may have seen The Orphan's Home Cycle, in Young Man from Atlanta, your character was Lily Dale. Yes. Many years past the portrayal of her within within yeah. the nine plays cycle. Yes. So what I've what I've always found fascinating is that beyond those nine plays there are even more plays about these two intertwined families and they are of course we spoke with Hallie Foote a few weeks ago um they are Horton's family yes. in in so many ways. The fact that you've been drawn to southern/midwestern slash midwestern 
characters. Is that as a result of casting or because of you really feel you connect and so those are parts you choose? Um, probably a combination. Uh, I mean, I have done a lot of uh, other kinds of plays too. You, you know, I've of done course, some British plays and so on. Um, I, I I have a couple of regrets. I wish I'd done more Shakespeare. You know, because I I feel I have a. I'd love to play Lear. That's the role I really want to play hmm. because the men's roles are the best. Mm-hmm. I was a terrific Juliet, though. I mean, Ilya Kazan came to see my Juliet, and he complimented me because, you know, the speech where she says, what if it be a poison? And I was very young when I did Juliet, but I thought every time I saw it, they would just, whoever was playing the role, they would just suddenly take the little vial and drink it and fall down asleep. And I thought, that doesn't make sense to me. So when I played it, I looked at the, at the, at the vial, and I said, what if it be a poison? And then I sort of touched a little bit of it with my tongue. And then slowly, during the whole speech, took a little more and a little more so that it made sense. And and I'll never forget Mr. Kazan saying that was an amazing choice. And he said almost a directorial choice. Maybe you should think about directing, which was very kind of him. Have you directed? A little bit. A little bit. I, I think... Um, I mean, I teach occasionally, but not very often. I think there are qualities uh, that I don't actually have as a director. I think I'm excellent at helping an actor find where to go because I'm an actress after all. But I think conceptually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's my thing. Hmm. Although, interestingly enough, the play I'm doing at the moment – I have all kinds of ideas of how to do it, and and I, I, I wish that I could implement them. Hmm. Does that happen often? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you do with that as a performer when you you know you have a director, but you you have your oh, own ideas? Oh, I've learned a long time ago. I go up to people, like for example, if I'm doing a film and and they say blah 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 blah, I say, you know, you remember the other day when you had the idea that I do blah blah blah, and uh, could I try that? You know, the other day when you said that might be a good idea. Of course, it's my idea, <laughs> but. but a lot of particularly men directors, you know, they have ego, so they can't say, that wasn't my idea. Uh, they, <laughs> they sort of have to uh, – I con them, I'm afraid. Oh, God, I hope they're not listening. Um, anyway. But it leads me to, a, to another question, which is do you think there's a difference for you when you're directed by a woman than directed by a man? Um, it would depend – it would it, it depend. Uh, one of the best directors I ever worked for was Ida Lupino. Hmm. Terrific, terrific director. In what show? What show I did some television shows ah. with her. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yes. Because, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you'd love to play Lear. And, of course, Emily Mann, who you've worked with, yes. uh, had Blair Brown play Prospero for her. Oh, really? Oh, so, how fabulous. So I'll have to talk to Emily. <laughs> opportunities remain. Um, our time is drawn to a close much too fast. Oh, I'm but sorry. This has been absolutely fascinating. Oh, and we should talk about John, though. We'll take a moment to talk a little more then about uh, about your husband, John Hopkins. How many of his plays did you get to be in and how many did you just get to to watch? 
Well, I watched all of the ones that were done. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, losing time, of course, uh, economic necessity. His brilliant, extraordinary play, Absent Forever, mm-hmm. which is just a, a fabulous play. So I did three. Mm-hmm. three out of- and we should say that, you know, sort of a theater family, you have a daughter, Caitlin Hopkins, who yes. who acts. Now, do you give her advice on on career or or you, roles you, or you know um she's an extraordinary actress extraordinary singer of course she's done opera and everything sort of fulfilled one of my dreams because she did a john adams opera at lincoln center but uh she often says that the fact that she watched me for so many years starting when she was very young and she was an interesting girl because most kids would get bored and leave, but she would literally sit and watch me rehearsing Blanche or various mm. plays and uh, and on film sets and and just sitting. She was very curious. Any reservations about your child? And I mean, now of course she's had plenty of work, but did you have reservations as a mother about your daughter going oh, into course. the business? You know, you 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 don't really want your children to be in. Uh, to do anything that is so um, haphazard, you know, and where you're the flavor of the month one day and then you can't get work the next and all of those things. Uh, but children need to go where their heart is, you know. They need to to find their own own way. My youngest daughter is a writer like hmm. her dad. And uh, my stepdaughter is a, a doctor of art history. So they're all in the arts hmm. and must have something to do with us, but also probably their own sensibility. And Impossible to know because it's both nature and nurture given yes. the parents yes. and the, the life you led. Well, with that, Shirley Knight, I have to say thank you so much for being with us on Downstage Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. We are a not-for-profit organization. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.